you cannot avoid technology. Technology will be there. It's going to evolve and it's going to develop. And one day you're just going to be lost. So it's not the time to avoid it. It's the time to understand how it works and to get involved in shaping it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Rewrite Tech. My name is Geraldine. And I'm Brad, and we're very excited to have our guest today, Kenza Aitzibu. She was born in Morocco, studied electrical engineering in Spain, worked for the Expo in Shanghai, and turned her pension for artificial intelligence into a profession at Deutsche Telekom. She knows in order to be successful, you need a network. Kenza, thank you very much for being here. Hi, thanks. How are you? Tell us about this journey and how you became such a vocal personality in the field uh, of AI and what kind of drew you to this field in the first place uh, instead of maybe the classical hardware engineering that you studied in, uh, in your uh, studies. Um, yeah, well, it, it wasn't a plan. It, it just happened. <laughs> <laughs> life i mean i i, I like i liked uh, maths at school obviously and i wanted to study something uh, um um with a lot of maths in it so i i um uh, decided for engineering and uh, that was at the end of the 90s uh, when i finished high school and telecommunications engineering was really uh, getting uh, bigger and bigger and uh, telecom engineers were needed so that's why i decided for that um, subject and then at university, I had a couple um, um, AI-related topics, let's say. So back then, we didn't say really AI or machine learning. Uh, so I had neural network course, I had a fuzzy logic course, and I had uh, uh, and I wrote my thesis about clustering algorithms. So uh, yeah, this is how it started. And uh, yeah, and now it's how it's finished. And now it's here. Now you're here. And oh, you, now I'm here. I'm not yeah, done and yet. your your career has taken you all over the world. You were in Spain. You were in you were in China. Uh, I watched your TED talk. It was it was really fascinating about how uh, you you mixed these different uh, cultures around with AI. And one of the biggest things uh, that you've been an advocate for is is around the bias. Uh, in AI, it, it, you know, it's been a long-standing issue, um, and and you argue it isn't done uh, intentionally, but more of a byproduct of the lack of diversity in the AI field. So it's just like this blind spot that's kind of happening uh, in AI. Um, so can you speak more about this? So what is really what kind of drove you down this, and what are some of the limitations that you're seeing uh, with regards to the AI biases that are currently out there right now? Yeah, well. Um I try not to call them AI biases because the biases don't come from the AI. They That's come a from valid us. point. That's so. a it's a human bias. Correct. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Absolutely. So yes. the, the biases come from humans, and yeah. the problem is that uh, um, we are the problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we, we we have so many biases and unconscious bias, which is uh, even more problematic because uh, since it's unconscious, you don't really see it. Um, but we teach this bias to the machines. And the machines learn it from our data and from interacting with us. And um, they believe this is how we see um, each other and how we interact with each other. And uh, especially it is how it needs to be done. So the machine reproduces those biases and um, it magnifies them. Because um, when you're dealing with a person who has a prejudice about something, it's a one-to-one -one, uh, relation. 
So this person is going to reproduce it as one-to-one. But if you're dealing with a chatbot, the chatbot can talk to one million people or or millions of people. So it's going to reproduce the bias million times. So this is why it's really much more dangerous than than the, the prejudices and biases we have. Yeah, because, I mean, you can kind of keep it to yourself or to your Facebook page, yeah. your biases. Exactly. But once you put it into a software, it replicates yeah. much yeah. faster. Uh, and another result of this bias, because you, you mentioned before that um, you did a gr- great comparison with regards to uh, beauty pageants and the, the perception of beauty. And uh, you mentioned, you know, why it, it doesn't seem like it's such a small thing, but a lot of large organizations and governments are actually using, the, uh, using this uh, technology in different ways. Uh, and you talk about one of the results of this technology being used um, is, is in recruitments, which is a huge issue, and how women uh, especially were filtered differently than men and people of color. So from your perception, uh, um, how can organizations alike combat this bias but still leverage the technology to expedite the process, right? So you don't want to go back to sifting through a thousand emails, but you also want to leverage technology, but you don't want it to be flawed. So what are some of the things that can kind of help um, managers and organizations alike that are trying to be much more proactive in this field? Mm. Well, I mean, the first step is to acknowledge that there is a bias and try to train uh, uh, the the... Um, I mean, the recruiters or or everybody has to be trained actually in unconscious bias. But as I said, the first step is to acknowledge it. Because right. in many cases, it is still being like ignored. Well, no, we're not racist. So this is the, the, the <laughs> answer you get. Well, yeah, yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. Yes and no. I mean, we have, we have been, uh, we no, we grow up in a, in, a, in a system and the system is like this. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to change it. So first of all, acknowledge it and then um, put some effort into um, um, developing the, the software from the beginning, um, considering all those biases. So it has to be by design. You know, when the software is, is, is finished, it's too late. It has to be at the beginning when you are thinking, even in the ideation phase, okay? Um, which problem do we want to solve? And for who do we want to solve it? And then how? And the how shouldn't be only the technical solution, but also um, include needs to include the, the ethical aspects. And at that moment, um, um, you need to discuss about all, all those aspects, all, all, the, all the biases that could be included and how you can uh, uh, remove them. So that's why you need to teach everybody about unconscious bias. And um, it has to be part of the requirements of each software or, or each application you're developing. And of course, you need a lot of transparency. Um, so when you have put your efforts to do with the proper way, make it transparent for your customers also to see it and, um, and make it possible for them to um, 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 to give some feedback or complain if there's self-correct something. almost. Yeah. 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 This is, um, I want to type in here because I would be really curious to learn more about your position um, when it comes to 
the idea, which is becoming more and more vocal, coming from um, different NGOs, activists, politicians, that we need to regulate AI and the use of AI, especially when it comes to public sector use, yet at the same time, not completely sort of stifle the impact it can have in terms of bringing innovation to society. Um, so there are very many real areas where bias in AI is having an impact. I'm sure a lot of our listeners and you are familiar with the um, study that ProPublica, for instance, did on how AI is being used in U.S. prisons to give pr jail sentences that are racially biased, how predictive policing is also often based on biased data sets. And I found it quite interesting um, that this summer, Margrethe Vesthager, the European Commission's vice president for digital policy, made a really clear stand on the fact that we should not allow something like predictive policing to happen in the EU. So kind of completely take out of the equation the use of AI in this sector. Would you agree with that, given the talk that we just had about the fear of amplifying biases, as you put it very well earlier, or do you think that's jumping the gun? I mean, it's it's really hard to talk about regulating regulation in in general because, as as everything, it has uh, uh, upsides and downsides. Um, I mean, what what we should keep in mind is that the AI should be just a, a help. It's just supporting the activity of, of uh, in all sectors, so even the police. But it shouldn't be the decision maker. It should help to make a decision, but not take the decision. And, um, you know, there's... Um, um, I think it was last June where um, um, just a family father was arrested in the US because the um, uh, facial recognition software... Um, said it's it's the the bad guy let's say and it wasn't he wasn't but the police obviously it had this um um this hit from the ai and they went directly to his house and arrested him in front of his his two uh, daughters in the in the garden and then so that was the trigger now for a big um um uh, um uh, how to like say an so audit of it, yeah. complaining and and the media mm -hmm. has has uh, known this is happening which is which is good i mean for the father and and, and the daughters the small ones it was uh, obviously a traumatic uh, experience um but what i wanted to say with this with this example is the police in that case just took the decision from the ai and ran away and arrested the guy and i'm saying okay well use your mind i mean <laughs> god gave you a mind use it um if you got this hit, you should still um, validate it. Can it really be possible? Ask the guy first, where were you at the time of, of the, the, the incidents? You know, you don't just go and arrest someone. So it's, it's not, okay, we should um, stop the technology completely, but we should learn how to deal with it. Mm. Because so the technology can help us, but we shouldn't, leave everything in its hand yeah um and that's a really important point that you raise decision making when it comes to ai processes there's been a lot of call for what you basically also just outlined having a human and being the last in command and not the ai but i'm wondering how practical that is in some situations it 
obviously sounds super practical when it comes to checking an AI's recommendation for going to arrest someone. Um, and other other areas where fact-checking or verification, like different systems of checks and balances, are just important and necessary. But how does that work in other contexts? I think one of the more prominent examples has been automated driving and decision-making processes there in situations where you've got that split second is the human really going to be the better one at making the decision or how no. do you like <laughs> I would totally agree like the car's going to make the better decision right how do you balance that then with you know when is the AI going to make the more sensible decision because it can react based on data based faster etc and when does the human need to be the last in command uh, I think the human needs to be last in command until we learned how to deal with it and until the technology is advanced enough to make the right decisions or the decisions that we think are right. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, also biased, obviously. Um, uh, with, the, with the, yeah, with the autonomous driving, I mean, it's, it's a big issue. And uh, when we're talking about, okay, what would you in that lapse of, of a second, how would you react? Nobody can really answer that question, because it is a reaction, it comes from our belly and, and uh, we can't think about it uh, cognitively. Uh, so it's hard to put this in, in technology. Um, but still, the car with all the sensors and, and, and everything, and if the whole surrounding is autonomous, obviously, then the, the, I'm sure that the car will make a, a better decision. But uh, in a hybrid uh, mode, we still need to cope with it. The most important is to know how we deal, so um, humans and machines, how that uh, combination is working is working best. Um, and in other in other areas, you know, as soon as humans are naturally directly involved, um, we have many industrial. Um, applications of AI. In those cases, it doesn't really matter. The AI can't take the decision. Okay, when you have only machines and there is no human involved, um, then automation is helping um, um, companies to, to, to survive and, and to survive the, 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 the um, Wettbewerb. Competition. High, uh, mm -hmm. Competition. Uh, so that's fine. The problem always appears when humans are involved, directly or indirectly. And this is where um, you cannot leave um, technology to work freely, uh, but uh, you have to use it as a support. Um, and we, we will have to do this many years until we learn how to deal with it. I realized I was just looking at my notes and I was like, oh, Kenza, I'm only going to ask you like very deep philosophical questions today, <laughs> but you're answering them so well. So, uh, so I, I do my best. <laughs> this is, of course, an area where technology is like fundamentally changing the way society works and the way that humans work. I was reading a couple of interviews with you in preparation of our podcast today and I stumbled upon another topic area that I'm personally really interested in discussing. So I thought I would pick it up when you were uh, philosophizing about the effects that the sharing economy is going to have on our society. I believe somebody asked you a question along the lines of like, what's going to stay? What's going to remain? And you mentioned human empathy and the importance for human humanness, basically, and what is going to change. And that was our relationship to possessions and the way we treat ownership 
And I think that's such an interesting debate when it comes to the sharing economy. I have to tell you, I was recently in town and I nearly forgot that we have such a thing as shared mobility solutions. And on a rainy day <laughs> where I realized I do not have to take my own bike, I don't even have to make that decision. I could just take a shared bike. It was like, oh, such a relief. Brilliant. The time that we live in. But um, I sometimes feel like we're at the moment kind of stuck in between. You know, there are so many... Um, especially young people, I think these Generation Z people, you know, out to save the planet and have understood that personal possessions are sort of a passe thing and everything is owned by Earth in the end. But at the same time, I also felt toward the end of the corona lockdown, like everybody was just ready to run to Primark and spend their money on plastic trash, basically. And I, I was wondering on your take of that, do you feel like we're in the state of transition? Or don't you think that sort of need for people... We've just been too capitalistically influenced to get over wanting to own things and wanting to buy things and this whole consumerism thing. Mm. So what, say the question again. Sorry, I trailed off there. The question is basically, how do you see this future sharing economy? And you were saying how you think we're not going to be owning things in the future anymore with the current state that society is in and everybody just wanting to go out and shop to um, <laughs> please themselves. <laughs> yeah, I think that's only because uh, we uh, we couldn't shop for many months and now <laughs> people feel, feel the urge to do it. But uh, I think that's going to regulate again. Um, um, it's It's hard to predict the future, obviously. Uh, I mean, it's hard to see over, over after 10 years. Uh, what we can say about, you know, the trend, usually we talk about the next five to 10 years, but more than that, it's, it's really science fiction. Uh, so I, I, I'm not a very good person at science fiction. <laughs> um, yeah, I just find it interesting to read the thoughts of, of people who, who can think that far. Um, but I, I do believe that the values in our society are, are uh, changing. And um, and it's been just too long of um, consumerism, as you said. And the, the new generation is seeing already that it cannot be the solution and people are more concerned about about the environment, and and we see already all those uh, all the sharing economy, and I'm sure this is gonna um, go on like this. And especially with the technology, there's yeah, just the 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 meaning of things changed somehow. Even even our relationships. Um, we don't meet people in the streets anymore. We meet them on Tinder. And, and when, <laughs> when we do meet them, then uh, we're chatting with uh, someone else, not sitting on the table. And um, I mean, everything is changing so, so, so quickly. Um, we don't go to the bank office anymore. We have online bank accounts. Um, and, and yeah, soon we're not going to be driving anymore ourselves. And... Uh, so, so the, the the whole thing is changing so much. I don't really know where we're going to be in 20 years. I, I don't have imagination for that. But um, uh, it's, yeah. But I think it's an interesting thought that you mentioned how, yeah, values are definitely changing. And there is that um, understanding of the need to understand the world as a whole. 
I'm, I wonder often, I've wondered about this, especially in the last months during Corona times, whether the platforms that we have that sort of dictate very much our daily lives are the right platforms to bring us to that future that, of course, we cannot predict. But if the world is sort of shaped by Uber and by Airbnb and by Amazon, is that what we need? Don't we need like cooperative platform models or other forms of community oriented platform models to represent those new values? Well, the values, I think, also change with those platforms or with the, with the use of them. So um, uh, Uber is changing the value of having a, your own car. I mean, still in many countries, having a car is something very important. It's like a status symbol. In Spain, for example, it's still like this today. And even the Spanish say there are two things you don't share. Your car and your wife. <laughs> and, and really, in Berlin's that the order... Opposite. There you go. In that <laughs> order, the wife is on the second priority. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and it's still today, it's still like this. And, and um, I have the feeling in Berlin, nobody cares about having um, his own car. It's people, even people who have cars, they always tell you, my neighbors are like, oh yeah, you need the car, just, just uh, let us know and use it. So it's it's not a big deal. They have it because because they, they bought it many years ago and it's still there and nobody thought really about selling it. And um, so Uber will change also the, the, this concept of, of having a car. At the same way, Airbnb changed the concept of having a guest room. And and um, and Tinder changed the concept of dating. So the, the or Instagram. So we we are growing with those platforms, and they are changing our way of of seeing life. So we don't have the same relationship uh, to a car or a house. Um, I, I mean, we we don't. Someone uh, 60, 60 years old has a completely different relationship uh, with ownership uh, to someone who's 20. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, yeah. And, and which platforms we need or what sort of platforms we need to support the values we have? I don't know, everything, everything um, changes and, and um, evolves. So we should have faith then at least. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, of course i mean um you know the the we have many like the, the big platforms you you just mentioned obviously they are influencing our way of life at the same time we are the ones using them and we do have a power so if let's say all of us stop using Facebook, then Facebook will have no data anymore to sell and, and blah, 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 blah. And then, and then um, we will keep, uh, we will have our old values back, let's say. Um, but of course, having a voice as a consumer um, means you have to be interested in the stuff. You have to know how, uh, how all those platforms work. You have to be a responsible consumer and then you can raise your voice and then uh, you, can, uh, you can inspire people to follow you. Uh, so that means, or, or, or for this to happen, um, we need to educate people. Not to use the platforms as they are because they're very user-friendly and this is why they're so successful, but also to reflect on the use uh, 
how to use them and and also reflect on how do they make their money and um, do you think that they use their money responsibly etc etc so you have to see the the the, the whole thing um, so so that was part of the reason why I wrote my book because I really want people to understand how all these things work and especially people who are far away from tech so it had to be something analog <laughs> that's why it's a book on paper mm-hmm. um, but uh, um, it's this digital education it's it's a really it's a really it's a pain it, because it's not yet included in the educational system and we doubt it we cannot have responsible consumers in the future um, who will um, decide on how the platforms uh, can develop responsibly mm. or influence them. Yeah, you made, you made some amazing points there. And you mentioned your book, um, which I, I wanted to to, to touch on, uh, because it's aimed uh, to combat people's fear of AI. And you mentioned this is a pain to get people onboarded with these things. It's a generational gap. I mean, I've already experienced my first generational gap. I mean, I downloaded TikTok. I'm in my early 30s. and I didn't know what was happening. Okay. Like it's, it's, it's crazy. So, I mean, your book is aimed to combat people's fear of AI. So why is this such a popular topic uh, in Germany, especially that, that you felt that you wanted to uh, address? Um. Well, the, the, the topic is, yeah, is popular now. I don't know why, actually, because of the media, <laughs> I guess. But mm. y- you open a newspaper and 100% there will be some article about artificial intelligence. Even, you know, in those analog <laughs> media that young people don't read anymore, but the older do. And um, uh, when you see the... the advertisements about AI, even the, the, the articles, or even on digital media, it's all black and dark, and there are some stars, and there's a robot, and it all looks... That's you know, not AI? Like mystical. And, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was this wow. mystical robot who controls it. <laughs> yeah, oh my absolutely. God. So every time you see this, and you don't understand what's, what's behind it, obviously you think of a robot taking... Um, the power of humans and killing all humans and saving planet Earth, or you you think of Terminator, um, any of the science fiction films where the robots uh, wanted to kill people. So this all is, accurate, this is the, all perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I agree. <laughs> and I and I always said we need to change this image because if people uh, are afraid of something, then they. They, you know, they just shut the door and they don't try to understand, but they avoid it. And it's not the solution because it's it's technology. You cannot avoid technology. Technology will be there. It's going to evolve and it's going to develop. And one day you're just going to be lost. So it's not the time to avoid it. It's the time to understand how it works and to get involved in shaping it, in shaping how it is built, because we are we're all concerned here. I mean, our world is changing and you can't say, okay, just it's only changing for tech people. It's changing for everybody, whether you like it or not, 
whether you're interested or not. So it's going to change your life. You might lose your job. Uh, you might uh, uh, lose everything. Uh, so it's better to understand how it works and to find a way how you can you can shape it and 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 cope with it and how you can still live your future in a different way 100% that's not going to be like today so our parents when they studied something so they had a major in something and they worked and most of the time in the same company for 50 years until they die this is a scenario that won't exist anymore um so even we, our generation, we had a major in something and we're working. But you see, yeah. <laughs> you just said that you're a comedian. So now we are doing podcasts and digital projects anymore. And <laughs> I went to school me, for molecular biology and genetics to be a dental surgeon. <laughs> Here I am. Okay. <laughs> Building digital exactly. products. Yeah. And I don't know where I'm going to be in two years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is all changing. So we have to be open and we have to be uh, um, just willing to learn. Mm. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I mean, you've been uh, you've been at, um, at Deutsche Telekom for now some years, uh, for almost three years now, leading up the AI division um, uh, in uh, in Berlin. And you've been working with uh, this organization for almost a decade now in telecommunications, especially uh, in Germany. How, how do companies like Telecom uh, contribute to this and do? And what are some of the things that you're working on that you can share with us uh, that kind of help foster this kind of um, more approachable future with regards to AI? Um, so, yeah, what's what's um, my team and, and, and I um, do is, f first of all, try to um, um, help all our business departments to understand how technology can help them solve their problems. Mm -hmm. So uh, our use cases are really very broad. We uh, work with the HR department, uh, um, um, you know, to help them uh, um, with, with all the surveys, for example, uh, or um, for the service. Um, so that's for our customers, um, um, it's, it's easier uh, to find a solution to their technical problems and to avoid that they call us at from the mm -hmm. beginning. So um, we are making the network more intelligent. And if that doesn't work well and the customer still needs to call us because uh, uh, his internet is not working, then uh, um, um, we work on on streamlining those processes and making making. Um, making the troubleshooting much more uh, quicker so that the customer doesn't need to wait as long on the on the phone call and um but yeah to, to your point um i am happy that i work at telecom mm -hmm. for this reason uh because not only the application the use cases are are that broad but we have um a very high sense of of um, social responsibility and ethical responsibility with the, with the technology that we're building, um, we are one of the the first companies who um, decided on guidelines um, um, when it comes to the use of AI. And those guidelines we didn't develop ourselves, but we invited um, people from all different sectors 
um, not only our customers, but uh, professors in philosophy in in, um, um, in in different, really different sectors and old and young. And we had many workshops with them and we asked them, so what is your expectation on us? Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, so after different workshops, those guidelines came out and they represent the wish of our customers. And when you read them, it's, it's like basic stuff. It's, mm -hmm. We are transparent. Okay, um, so this is a guideline that uh, uh, we took. It means that every time the customer is interacting with us, he or she knows she's talking to a person or to a robot. So th this kind of, of transparency, right. but obviously everywhere we have AI, we are saying, okay, here there's an AI in the background and this is how it works and this is why we use it. So this transparency was really important to our customers and this is something that we need to comply with and it is, um, it is included in our uh, approval process. So when we build AI solutions and, um, and they need at the end, you know, at the end of development mm -hmm. and after the test, you need you need the, you need approval to be able to launch uh, the solution, and there are um, requirements in there um, uh, related to AI solutions, and if you don't comply with this, then you cannot launch. Um, so it shows that it is really. We really mean it. <laughs> That's good. You, know? you should mean it. It's always yes. good to be behind a company that means it. And I like the transparency that, like, hey, this guy Gary is a bot. All right, Gary's not a real person. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and and you know this, um, the guidelines they came from our governance uh, department, and I work for the IT, so more the technical department. And for us at the beginning, it was a pain in the ass mm -hmm. because obviously. We had to uh, to um, make much more efforts for our application, um, and most of the times they were more uh, costly um, to uh, to be able to um, uh, fulfill those requirements, um, and many use cases we were not even able to develop because of. Uh, uh, privacy issues, data privacy, etc., uh, etc. Et so, as a technical person, it is a pain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Definitely. Because when you see your great idea, your great project being stopped, because there might be a very, very small risk uh, jeopardizing the privacy, um, uh, then you really suffer. But at the same time, as a consumer and as a citizen, I say, okay. You know, I feel happy working for that company and I know they do the best um, um, to safeguard um, uh, our, our privacy. And this is something I wish for all companies, that all of them would work like this. So um, we have a lot of, or I assume and I hope that we have a long, <laughs> a lot of young developers listening to this podcast, um, people who are aspiring to maybe have a career that looks like yours and we usually like to ask our guests for a piece of advice for those people listening to our show um, especially maybe also people interested in in AI development um, and working here in Germany uh, where there's probably a lot of competition from elsewhere around the world and also other competing places around the world what would be some key pieces of advice that you would give them along the way 
Well, especially, especially the, the ones developing the AI. So all the data scientists, data engineers and, and uh, computer scientists. Um, um, we do have a bigger responsibility now. And obviously we're not the only ones holding that responsibility. The whole, the whole society is responsible for what's uh, being developed and how, how the machines learn. Because even if we do the job at the beginning, the machine keeps learning from, from uh, interacting with people. So this is why I'm saying the whole, uh, all of us are responsible. Um, but coming back uh, to the, <laughs> the, to the um, software engineers and, and, and data engineers, um, I think you guys don't need to worry about getting a job. <laughs> you are probably the That's most... That's a piece of advice everyone will want to hear. Big there. I yes, love it. But then, but then um, you should um, look for a company that um, really consi considers the privacy of, of people and... and, and um, that really builds products that are for the human good and not and not against the humans and only for profit. So it's really a power that you have in your hands. Uh, as I said, you can choose the job you like. Please choose the right one. And all companies are paying good money for these uh, for these profiles. Um, so it is in your hand to change the world. Let's say. And and sometimes uh, starting small uh, uh, is is good enough. And and starting small, maybe choosing the right uh, the right uh, company to work for is a big step. It's not starting small. It's starting very big, because the impact you have is much higher than you think at the beginning. So you're developing a chatbot, and for you maybe oh, it's just a small chatbot. But who knows? It's uh, it becomes a big one used by millions of people worldwide and then your impact developing that chatbot is much higher than you thought at the beginning. Um, so um, think about it twice for who you work. I've got only one question left, which is not a deeply <laughs> philosophical one, I think. I'm not sure though. And that is how do you dance to an algorithm, Kenza? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's the yeah it's the title, the subtitle of my book. I get this question very often, and it's actually just a, a word, uh, Wortspiel. How do you say it's it's not really meant like this? But um, the algorithms, of course, it's um, writing algorithms is also a art. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there are different ways of writing them, depend depending on who's sitting in front of the laptop. And um, dancing with them, I mean with it, you can write them in a proper way and you can tell them how to dance. Uh, so it's, it's on you. The algorithms don't have a self, uh, um, a, a self... Um, uh, a will of their own? Yeah, a will of their own. So we are, we are uh, uh, teaching them how to dance. So the human is the choreographer <laughs> of the code. How beautiful, Kenza. Thank oh, you yes, so much. Still. <laughs> You're welcome. It was wonderful to have you on Rewrite Tech with us today. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing all your thoughts. You're welcome. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And yeah, and that's another episode in... Um, Brad, time flies together with you. I know. <laughs> We've done so many episodes now. We've talked with... 
people in startups, large organizations, AI, uh, mobility. We'll actually be diving back into mobility very soon, speaking uh, with some representatives from Moya, which is uh, a very uh, innovative lab within the Volkswagen Group. And uh, we'll be continuing uh, looking into different startups as well in the very near future. So please tune in to Rewrite Tech. Follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and every other platform that Kenza mentioned that may or may not steal your data. Can't (laughs) wait to see you all. And Kenza, again, thank you so much for being part of our podcast. You're welcome.